Welcome to the Helping Children Thrive podcast, where we talk about ways to improve your child's health and recovery. I'm your host, Momina Sili, and I'm a certified pediatric functional medicine health coach. At Helping Children Thrive, it is our aim to educate and empower parents and practitioners with integrative approaches to children's health conditions. Along with this hope that our children can recover, I welcome you all. Hi, everyone. Today on the podcast, my guest is Dr. Natasha Beck. We talk um, about how to support parents who've either newly received a diagnosis or are in the middle, um, in the throes of trying to figure out a way of how to help support their children um, with various conditions. It could be autism, it could be ADHD, it could be ODD, but it could also just be um, anxiety and various conditions like that. Dr. Natasha Beck is a parenting expert and founder of the Dr. Organic Mommy. It's an online resource focused on pregnancy, parenting, and non-toxic living. She holds a doctorate in clinical psychology, specializes in pediatric neuropsychology, and has a master's in public health, which specializes in child and family health. She's also certified in leadership education in neurodevelopmental disabilities from Children's Hospital Los Angeles. From how to handle tantrums to mealtime difficulties to helping families live healthier lives, Dr. Organic Mommy aims to help every family make healthy decisions drawing on her experience as a mom and parenting expert. Her parenting expertise combines the use of Waldorf, Montessori and RIE philosophies tied into cognitive behavior and play therapy. So let's just get into the episode and listen to everything she has to say. Hi, Natasha. I'm so happy to have you here today. Thank you so much for having me, Mamina. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, this is, um, it's a pleasure for all of us. Um, so we, when we get started, I like to always ask um, our guests what got them to, to do all the work that they do, what got them started, especially in functional medicine. Um, so yeah, how did you get into all of that? Sure. So when I was working in the clinics over at uh, the University of Southern California, doing testing on children, um, various neuropsychological batteries, I noticed the impact of diet um, on their diagnoses and um, how that wasn't quite evaluated or taken into consideration. Uh, so I really started to take a deep dive into that. Uh, I already had my master's in child and family health, but I just needed it a little bit more. And unfortunately with, you know, current education guidelines, you know, especially with medical physicians, they, they get maybe 19 hours of nutrition education. And so unless you're passionate about it, you really unfortunately are not being given all the tools necessary to equip yourself to make the best decision for you and your family. So um, once I did that deep dive, um, you know, and then had my own family, uh, my young, my oldest son um, at the time when he was seven weeks old was uh, in the hospital for 29 days and they couldn't figure out what was wrong with him. So that was when I took a deeper dive into environmental toxins um, because they couldn't figure out what was wrong based on general lab work. Mm -hmm. So from there, I just started the page and I wanted basically to provide um, a resource for parents and caregivers that was non-biased and truly, you know, provided knowledge and education and people can pick and choose what works best for them and their family. 
Yeah, you do a lot of charity work as well. And I think that's something that um, before coming on, I was just telling you how inspiring that is for me um, to come to your page and to see all of that. So can you just talk a little bit about that as well, of how, um, how that factors in everything that you do? Well, I'm very blessed. And so I was, I'm fortunate, like some people need to have the income to come in from these types of pages. Uh, but I take all of the proceeds from my page um, everything from a sponsored post or affiliate codes or anything that people buy of like my recommendations from Amazon, uh, they all go to three different charities. The first being Baby to Baby, uh, which is an organization that provides basic essentials to children zero to 12 years of old. You know, you wouldn't think that diapers um, would be a big deal, but most people unfortunately just can't even afford diapers and can't afford to buy the big packs. And so it gets cheaper and, you know, and it's very difficult. Uh, the second organization is called the Environmental Working Group. Um, that's something I'm very passionate about as well. Um, and they are a nonprofit organization aiming to provide re uh, research and education to people about, you know, environmental toxins, things in that are in our food, you know, in our cleaning products and our beauty products, and also pushing for government uh, policy as well. Mm -hmm. And then the third is Charity Water, which aims to provide clean water to everyone all over the world. Yeah, no, two of those are very, very close to my heart as well. Um, and so, yeah, I'm just so glad that, you know, you do all of that work. And especially with EWG, I know that it's it's a platform that I use a lot with my clients and people that I, that I you know, talk to on a daily basis, just to kind of go and use their resources to see whether the products that we use are clean um, and, and where they are on their rating. So it's, it's such a great visual for most people to just go and, and look into it and see if what they have is good. And then they also have so many options for alternatives. So it's such a great platform for everyone to learn from. I'm so glad you and your audience are enjoying it. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. So, you know, what I wanted to really get into, um, we talk a lot about, you know, a lot of the, the, the biomedical and, and, the, and the underlying issues that can factor into things like autism, ADHD, ODD, or SPD, etc. Um, but what I did want to really get into um, with you, especially like with your background was, you know, when parents leave a doctor's office with with a diagnosis, right? Their world at that point is literally crashing down on them. They, they're they so confused. They're so lost. They don't know what to do. Like a lot of times when you talk to those parents, they're just, you know, they're just struggling to make sense of all of the information there. What would you recommend to those parents? Like what are the first few practical steps that they can take to just get started on this journey? Sure. Great question. Um, it is very overwhelming. Typically, I first recommend joining a parent group where um, you there's a group that of people that are experiencing the same thing. Um, parents have are the best researchers, I think. Um, and so they've done everything. So I think just gathering as much information, especially when it comes to local resources. So, you know, going online and finding, you know, groups that um, with other parents, I think would be the most beneficial. Um, and then, you know, searching for local organizations that um, support your child's diagnosis as well. And hopefully you have a good physician and a good uh, pediatric neuropsychologist that has done testing that can provide 
you know, a great list of recommendations, whether it's, you know, occupational therapy or speech and language therapy, social skills, um, you know, recommending you to a nutritionist to, you know, change up your diet, talking to you about the toxins in your home and the possibility of, you know, those impacting your child's behaviors as well. Yeah. And so let's just kind of get into what are those like daily practical things that they can start looking into? So you spoke about nutrition, you spoke about environmental toxins, right? Um, and those, like, like you said, like before getting into your research, that was one of the main things that kind of stood out to you was the impact that those things had on those families. So what would be a great place for families to start off with, like when they're looking at a diet, like knowing that everyone will have their own particular um, dietary needs, but in general, what would be some of the things that they can start um, looking into? Sure. So the first things I always recommend is to avoid things, uh, food items that do not have preservatives and don't have artificial dyes. Uh, preservatives and artificial dyes, you know, since the 1970s have been found to um, increase a child's uh, hyperactivity symptoms. And so it's been very much, you know, correlated with ADHD symptoms, um, as well as, you know, a number of other diagnoses. So you want to turn around your package of food First, try and avoid more packaged foods, you know, always stick with the fruits, veggies, seeds, grains, you know, that type of thing. And your healthy fats um, being avocado, olive oil, oil you know, um, salmon, etc. So you're going to turn around your package, always read your labels. If there's anything on there, you're not sure what it is, look it up. Because most things are preservatives because that's how things are shelf stable, you know? And so you wanna avoid those things. Artificial dyes like red 40, um, yellow six, blue lake, you know, six. Uh, those, are, those are not real dyes. You wanna look for things that are naturally dyed like with beet juice or turmeric, things like that. Um, so those are first two. The third one is anything with refined sugars. So you wanna stick with things that are sweetened naturally with fruits like um, like dates or bananas or apples, uh, using maple syrup or honey. Those are all great types of sugars that are, are all naturally occurring. Uh, most sugars are very heavily processed and there's a lot of chemicals that are put into them. And you know, same with artificial sweeteners, your body, you may not, it may be sugar free, but you're, it's telling your body to create insulin. And so it's, it's, you know, not only is it not good for you, you know, in terms of holding on to fat, but it's just dysregulating your body, especially for a child, you know, when their body is so small and they're really not able to handle all of those things. So preservatives, artificial dyes, refined sugars, like cane sugar. If you're going to eat cane sugar, make sure it's organic. Uh, most sugar comes from sugar beets and you want to make sure those are organic and non-GMO. Um, so sticking with your uh, unrefined sugars. Uh, and then take a look at your, um, uh, the impact of gluten. Um, you know, there's been a lot of controversy. Well, you know, gluten is really, you know, you should only be avoiding it if you have celiac disease uh, where you can't, um, or all the little microvilli in your intestines can't actually absorb the nutrients. Uh, but there's a lot of people who just have sensitivities. They may not have full-blown celiac disease, um, but they're sensitive to gluten. And there's many gluten products that are just so overly processed, like the typical bread that you buy in a store, you know, your white bread, your white flour. So those you want to try and avoid as well. They can just be really disruptive. So imagine if you have a constant stomach ache and you're really not able to express that to anyone because you're a child, 
and you don't really know how to express what's going on with you, you know, it would come out in your behavior. If you're just not feeling good, yeah. you'd just be in a bad mood all day. Yeah. Um, so imagine what it's like for that child. So trying to remove um, those low nutrient type of glutens. If you're going to stick with gluten, I would rather you stick with like, you know, einkorn or ta- uh, not, uh, not tough, um, einkorn, you know, uh, farro, barley, um, Camel. Uh, salt. Camel. Uh, the- yeah. Camel. Yes, yes, great. All of those are better for you glutens, you know, and then the other gluten-free grains, you know, that are great for you that are more nutrient dense are like your quinoas, your teff, your millet, you know, your oats, um, and just making sure that your oats are organic and looking to make sure that they are glyphosate free. Glyphosate is a pesticide that is sprayed on to, um, to get rid of weeds and also as a drying agent on grains and has very much been linked to a number of uh, diseases and impacting children's health. So those are great things to look out for. The last thing I'd look at is dairy. Dairy can be often uh, be very inflammatory um, and more and more children and, and people in general are, are uh, allergic to it. So when buying dairy, you wanna try and source it properly, meaning making sure that it's organic. Um, and just because it's organic isn't, doesn't mean it's great either. For example, grated, um, cheese in the package that contains cellulose most of the time, which is a preservative that prevents the cheese from clumping together when you grate it. So I'd rather you take a raw, like a block of cheddar, uh, cheddar cheese and freshly grate it to, to avoid those preservatives. Yeah. Yeah. And, but you know, a lot of parents, um, especially when, when I talk to parents um, of kids with autism, um, just as one example, they struggle with with trying to make a lot of these changes because their kids are very, very selective eaters. So it's easy for a lot of um, us to make those recommendations to them. But then just the the fact of making those recommendations almost like, you know, throws them into hives because they're like, how are we going to do that? Like, how do we take away the one food that our child will willingly eat without throwing a whole tantrum, without making dinner time, like a three hour ordeal? Like, how do we help those parents? What hope do we give them? What recommendations can we give them? Yeah, it's definitely a tough one. And I feel for those parents. So you want to look at a few things. Um, one is 80, 20 is something that I always recommend. Uh, you can't control things all the time. It's, you know, it's 80% of the time you're trying to control things, 20% you're not, or whatever that percentage may be for your family. And often social toxins can be worse than chemical ones. So if you're constantly worrying about it, if you're stressing about it, probably not the best. So, you know, pick your battles. Now, when it comes to foods that children are tending to be more selective of, or they tend to be more cautious about, um, you want to mix it up. So if your child's not wanting any fruits or veggies, try a smoothie, you know, and if your child's not interested in the texture of a smoothie, take that smoothie and pour it into a popsicle mold and make a popsicle out of it. So you just want to find different ways, like often children um, with autism, they they are very selective with textures. And so you have to be mindful of that. It's very um, sensory overloading for them to try something mushy versus something harder or crunchy. Um, and so playing around with it, I think is the most helpful, you know, um, switching it up, like roasting something's, you know, making it more crunchy if they don't like it as a mash. So, you know, say you're making, you know, kale and you're going to mash it into like, you know, some potatoes 
uh, take the kale and, and just roast it up and make it into a chip. You know, maybe they're more into crunchy things and they like chips more. Um, if you're gonna, if they are very into cheese, try and, you know, find um, a great farmer around you or, you know, at least buying it organic um, and, and see how that helps as well. Yeah, and, and that kind of um, resonates a, a, across all conditions. So it's not just for autism, but even like kids with ADHD, a lot of parents with kids with ODD um, or oppositional defense disorder don't really think a lot about food and, and the connection to their the children's condition. I was wondering whether you had any cases um, like that or any stories like that for, for those parents who are struggling with kids with with more um, with more severe like behavior issues and how diet and, and nutrition has made a change there. Yeah, um, I'm always very hesitant to look at children with a diagnosis of oppositional defiant disorder. Um, typically, you know, I see a lot of kids who are very highly sensitive. Um, so, you know, changing your way in terms of parenting, like the reframing the language can make a very big difference. Um, and then also looking at environmental toxins, you know, I want, you know, I'd always recommend parents looking at, you know, if mold is in their home, have they tested for mold? Um, you know, um, that can impact children more so than adults sometimes, you know, everybody, you know, even people living in the same house, they're like, well, I'm fine, you know, but your child's not. So let's look at everything that's going on. Um, but as far as, you know, children who have more behavioral difficulties, um, I think slowing down is really important. I find that like in today's world, we're often so overscheduled and we're so rushed that we're not actually taking the time to have that respectful two-way relationship with our child and really understanding where they're coming from. Um, you know, we're constantly telling them, no, you can't do this. No, you can't do that. And why are you doing this? And so it's just that ever present shame and guilt and no parent means to do that. You know, all, everyone who has a child, of course, is trying their best. And, you know, parenthood does not come with a manual, unfortunately. And so, you know, I often recommend, you know, parents looking up uh, respectful parenting, looking at um, this woman uh, named Magda Gerber, yeah. Um, coined a philosophy called Rye Resources Infant Education, and it's just a way of reframing your language um, with your child. And um, I often use that, especially when I was doing play therapy, just to take the time to actually observe children and see them in their natural environment, and not feel the need to constantly, you know, interact with them. Um, and I know we're getting kind of veered off from your original question. Great. Uh, with children with oppositional defiant, but I, I, I would urge parents to kind of take a step back, reevaluate environmental toxins, reevaluate food sensitivities, you know, thinking about your child from um, a perspective of being very highly sensitive, um, and, and then looking at parenting, you know, changes, you know, parents, you know, all children are different. I have three children. All three of my children are very different in terms of temperament and personality. And so the way I parent them can be slightly different between the three of them because they need different things. And so it is very hard to make those adjustments when you think, well, I should be treating my children all equally. You know, um, you have to make adjustments because your personality and your temperament may not mesh with your child's. And so changing that may impact um, your child's behavior for the better. Yeah, no, and I think that 
um, you know, where it's kind of right in sync with what even what I wanted to ask you next was just about the whole aspect of of parenting um, children with a lot of like complicated conditions. It's it's hard, right? Because the daily needs of these children um, are are can often be very different than um, than a lot of like. I don't like to use that word, but neurotypical children, um, their, their needs tend to be very different. Um, they, like you said, they can be very overwhelmed really fast. They might not be able to process um, from our instruction to their ability to actually do something. So if you want them to wear shoes, it might take them several steps to get there. How can parents just, you know, you talked about time and trying to slow down, but how can they how can they work around this whole aspect of parenting um, for their kids? So um, to give you a little background, I have ADHD and dyslexia, uh, now commonly known as reading disorder. My husband is severely, uh, has a severe ADHD. So I knew going into this, there is a genetic component. So I especially had to pay attention to how I parented my, ch uh, my children and what I needed to do with them. You know, I do believe all children should be on a natural rhythm throughout the day, um, but I think it's especially important for children that are more have a genetic predisposition towards these type of uh, diagnoses um, and disorders. Um, so incorporating things like having a rhythm where you have a typical day to your, to your you know, typical rhythm to your day. So what I mean by that is same, similar wake up time breakfast at the same time, snack at the same time, lunch, mid-afternoon snack, dinner. So those five meal times will anchor your day. Now you're going to have times where you're going to, this is coming from a uh, Waldorf philosophy, where you have in-breath and out-breath activities. You know, out-breath meaning being outside, being, you know, very sensory overloaded, like lots of, you know, stuff coming in from your environment. Um, but being mindful for a child who's more highly sensitive, I wouldn't necessarily take them to a lot of birthday parties or, you know, kid-centered events, which I personally don't like anyways, because I am under the philosophy where I take my children to things where I still like to do those types of things where like we go on a hike, it just looks different now, you know, we're going to have to slow down or end it sooner or take more breaks. Um, so I prefer taking children out in nature, going to the beach, going for a walk, um, you know, bringing a little basket and collecting things. Those are all fun activities that, not are, that is just not overwhelming to the child and then also not overwhelming to a parent. And so just being mindful of the activities that you take them to um, and being mindful of how much you say yes to going to everything. You know, you don't need to go to a birthday party every weekend with lots of sensory input and overload, especially for your child that you know, it's, it's difficult for them to handle that. So being mindful of that. Um, the next thing I always recommend is structure to your day. It can be fluid, like things can move. Um, but when in, there's predictability in a child's routine um, and a child's day, it makes them feel a lot more comfortable, a lot safer and um, provides a, a, an outlet for them just to kind of process their really strong feelings that they may have throughout the day, as opposed to, you know, oh, we're doing this, oh, we're doing this, you know, spontaneous moving here, oh, we're going to just stay longer at lunch, oh, we're going to skip, you know, your nap time, or your rest time. Um, and so I think 
that is really important. And that goes back to the, your in-breath activities where you're having, you may, your child may not be napping anymore, but there should be moments of resting. And it's not necessarily like your child laying down in bed anymore, but a calming activity where they're doing some kind of handwork, you know, knitting, sewing, um, finger knitting. If you don't know what finger knitting, look, uh, look that up on YouTube great for calming activity for children and for adults really you know making beaded necklaces doing some reading some drawing those are more in-breath activities where you're just calm and at peace and quiet um so versus your out breath you know running around outside going swimming you know making forts whatever that may be um so being mindful of that is really important and then having a place that's dedicated for everything it's really important for children um, keeping them organized and not leading to battles and fights. Where are your shoes? You don't know where they are. We've got to go. We're late. You know, oh, your shoes are in the shoe basket, making it consistent. So when you come home, you enter your home, there's a basket of your shoes. Don't need to be overwhelmed. They can have a few pairs of shoes and that's it. Um, so just tailoring back also the amount of things that you have and having a place for all of your child's items. You have a hook for your child's backpack. Oh, let's put our lunchbox right next to the sink so we can clean it out and have it ready for the next day. Um, I always recommend, you know, morning time is always difficult getting ready in the morning. Um, having a basket, I have a basket for each child in my kitchen with their clothes, their daytime clothes or school clothes or camp clothes, whatever. Um, it makes it much easier than trying to tell them to go back to their room to get dressed and as opposed to being right there. So having a place for everything is really important um, for all children, but especially children who are struggling with executive functioning. Yeah, and I think um, one of the best things, um, just hearing you talk about that, is the importance of parents also to just be a little bit more organized and, and prepared so that they're almost we're there to to guide them and that we're we're, we're prepared right so that we're not overwhelmed first because a lot of times we're projecting a lot of our own anxiety of a certain situation on our children um and 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 now like you know there's more diagnosis of uh, of conditions in our children where a lot of parents themselves were, were missed um, in, in many different um, circumstances. I definitely see a lot of that here in, in this part of the world where the parents were missed with a lot of the, of, of the diagnosis. Once their kids are diagnosed, they're like, hmm, wait, that sounds very similar to like what I'm going through or what I experience. So it's almost like allowing that overwhelm in the whole household to kind of come down um, so that, that there is less stress for the kid, but also less stress for the parents. And, and so that whole organization kind of just feeds into all of that. Um, and, and you talk about routines. And then I really like this whole idea of like in and out breath. Um, I, I kind of wanted to just ask a little bit more about that. Is there, an, is there a necessity to do both on a daily basis? Or um, should parents scatter them out? Like, how should that work? Great question. Um, so they should be doing both each day. Um, you want your child having time where you're outside exploring, you know, it, you know, depending on the child's age, anywhere from four to eight hours a day. Um, you know, in the early, earlier on, you want them outside more, you know, not only is it good for their, you know, health and their microbiome, but it's good for them to be connected to nature. Um, and, um, 
it's common because children need that outlet. So they will always need to have those out-breath activities where they're just engaged and having wild fun and playing and having unstructured time to play. But they, they need that time to kind of calm, come down because you can't be turned on all the time. So imagine if you're at um, a big party and that's like really overwhelming for you and you've got to talk to everybody and just be turned on, you're going to be exhausted at a certain point. And if you don't take yourself out of that situation naturally, like you may become more grumpy, more stubborn, more irritable. And so it comes out and it may impact your relationship with your partner. And so just being mindful of you are your child's um, conductor. You are the one imposing, okay, this is when we're doing our in-breaths. This is when we're doing our out-breaths. This is when we're having our mealtime and I'm deciding what you're going to eat. You're going to decide if and how much to eat as the child. And so having that nice balance and nice rhythm to your day is really important, not only for the child, but like you said, for the parent themselves, who are often seeing that, hmm, there's a lot of similarities, which obviously there's some genetic component to some of these diagnoses. Um, and so oftentimes, you know, they were compensating um, as a child and as an adult, but they are learning techniques uh, now through their children. Yeah. And, you know, when you talk about um, the out-breath and when, when parents should be taking their kids out, and, and I love that you talk about nature as being, you know, a great um, outlet for kids to get their out-breath. Um, a lot of times parents struggle with just taking their kids out, um, whether they're um, kids with autism or kids with sensory processing disorder, um, where even going to a park is just overwhelming or that it's still not a safe enough space like you know you spoke about um martha herbert i think gerbert Mar um, yeah. yeah and so i i kind of follow uh janet lansbury who follows kind of her idea and so where she talks about providing a safe space for which the kids can play and, and you want them to play and and kind of just have that uninhibited fun but for a lot of parents that it's a struggle, right? Um, there is this, um, a lot of um, parents with kids with autism will tell you that the kids will just like leave their hand and run, right? Like that unpredictability of, of those kinds of things when they're taking them out of their house for that out breath. How should those parents cope? Great question. Um, and that is very difficult and you have to know your child, but start small. If you're fortunate and you have a backyard, start with your backyard. If you're not, you know, taking them on a hike as opposed to a park that's very often overwhelming with all the bright colors of, you know, the play equipment and the children and having so many people being there. So trying to, you know, drive, you know, drive a little bit of ways to find, you know, a more secluded place where you can access nature. Um, taking a walk around your neighborhood. And I understand when they feel like, oh, the child's going to walk away, you know, or run away rather. There are rules before you go out and squatting down and talking to your child and making sure they, you know, not only understand the rules, but they acknowledge them and respect them, you know, letting them know when we're on the sidewalk, I have to hold your hand because it's my job to keep you safe. And there are cars driving by that may not see you and I don't want you to get hurt and hit by the cars. You may hold my hand on one side and on their other hand, you may carry your basket where you may collect things. 
you know, all children, no matter of a diagnosis of autism or whatnot, love to collect things. Um, and so um, I think that makes it a more enjoyable trip. And just if you're noticing the, the, the tone of my voice um, is really, the reason I speak like this is because it's helpful for parents to see that that's how you can speak to a child when you're constantly saying, well, we've got to get out of the house now. We've got to go, you know, all right, we, we've got to go get our outside time. Let's go. Well, you have to make sure you hold my hand. There's a difference in the energy that you're projecting onto your child and also onto yourself, because, you know, if you're not comfortable going outside and you're already feeling anxious, I wouldn't recommend that then mm -hmm. because you've got to address it first with yourself because you will inevitably project that onto your child, your, your feelings of anxiety. So think about what would make you feel more comfortable, having another adult with you, having a friend with you, you know, or a relative so that you don't feel like it's all on you um, to be completely 100% attuned to your child. Um, so thinking about different ways that, you know, you can achieve those goals. Yeah. You know, you, you talk about friends or, or another family member um, being along you know, to help out a lot of times um, from from my interactions with a lot of these families has been the struggle that they've had to find um, support within the family or within their close circle of friends, especially once their child is starting to grow up and starting to have certain behaviors that might not look very, very typical or that a lot of parents just not understanding grandparents, for example, how can they approach those conversations and try to look out for that kind of support. I think that is really difficult, especially can it, as it can be so cultural, you know, having mental health conditions um, and people often not believing what it is and saying like, they just need to, you need to parent them better. You need to be more strict um, is something that I often hear. Um, you know, a lot of the time I find that it's easier to blame it on your doctor, you know, and say, this is what my doctor said. I'm following the advice of my doctor. You know, this is what works best for us. You know, I know you think I need to be more strict. You know, I'm taking a different approach. This is what is working for us. And we're, we're trying new things. And I'm not saying I'm 100% right in this. And I have no idea, um, but I'm changing it up, you know, and it would really help me. And I think that that's the key phrase when you're being vulnerable with family and relatives and grandparents and in-laws um, saying it would really help me because I'm struggling, if you could do X, Y, and Z, you know, try it out. Um, it may not work, but it would really help me because I'm struggling. Um, oftentimes I think uh, family members, um, A, take it personally, if you are changing up your parenting um, and doing things differently than they did. Um, and so they feel like you're judging the way they raised their children or raised you. Um, so I think being vulnerable um, is always very helpful in that type of situation. Yeah, I think that's great advice because a lot of parents, um, one of the, the concerns that, that they share with me is just the fact that a lot of grandparents are saying, that's like, we raised you like that and you were fine. And, you know, that's where a lot of the, the tension starts, right? And, and from there on out, like you said, you're not, um, you're not disciplining your child correctly, which can feel like a blow to a parent because they're already so, like you said, vulnerable, but also trying their best. Yeah. Um, and it almost is like a personal attack to them, right? And so for a lot of families, they're just, they're, 
they're just done. Like they're, they're so tired and exhausted of, of being personally attacked for something that they had nothing to do. I mean, they didn't cause that. They didn't wish that. It's just how things turned out. I think that is really tough because that's often the most common thing that I hear is the discipline. You're not disciplining your child enough. Um, and say, you know, well, you're, you may be right. I'm trying a different approach where I'm trying to understand my child, figure out where they're coming from so that there's a, a mutual respect. And you know what? It may not be right. And like, you're right. I, I came out great and you raised me great. And I'm very fortunate. I'm very happy about that. Um, but I'm trying out something differently. You know, my child has, you know, these difficulties and, and I'm trying a different approach. So, you know, let's try it for a little bit. What's the harm in trying it? Yeah. yeah. And then finding, you know, other parent groups, I think is always really helpful because, you know, not only can you look to them for, you know, um, different resources, but you can vent to them. They're going through a similar process and similar um, emotions and so, especially if they, you know, you find someone who's more local, you know, to you, there's lots of people out there going through these types of similar um, things. So, you know, connecting with them, I think is really important. Yeah. Like you make a new tribe, right? Um, a tribe that understands you and supports you. Um, so one of the things, just talking about that, how can parents, so when they're having a child and they're like in the throes of a full blown tantrum, right? Or they're just or not even tantrum, they're just struggling with like a complete sensory overload. How can parents help them in that moment, which is probably so hard to, like, to make their way into the child's head at that point? What can they do? So two different things. So one is a tantrum where a child can, can get out of it um, versus a child who's so overloaded with sensory input that they're having a complete meltdown that they just can't get there. So um, I'd, I'd separate those two. With some, a child who's got a sensory overload, it depends if you're out in public or out in home. Um, if you're out in public, I do try to recommend saying, like you remaining as calm as possible. Like a quote that I often say to parents is the louder your child is, the quieter you are. Um, because they may not match you, but they're not gonna just, they're, they're gonna feel like you're calm and you're safe and that you're in control. Because if you're yelling and out of control, they're going to think, well, no one's here to keep me in control and keep me safe. Um, so that's my number one thing. Number two, with a child who's just overloaded um, with sensory input, just getting them home and getting them to a safe space where they feel comfortable. Um, you know, you're, you're not going to sit there and try to talk to that, talk that child out. It's just not going to work because they physically cannot hear you. Um, same with a child who's in a, you know, a temper tantrum when they're screaming, they may be able to get down from it. But if a child's, you know, oh, you, you know, I, you know, the child was pouring salt on the table at a restaurant and, you know, you took the salt away um, and it led to a temper tantrum and they're freaking out. Um, you're going to wait for them to calm down. Now, if you're out in public at a restaurant, you're going to say, I'm going to pick up your body and move you outside so we can take a break together. And they're screaming, screaming, screaming. You're going to calmly say that, lift up their body, move them outside, let them have their space where they're screaming. When they're screaming, you can say, when you're calm, I can help you. I can't hear you right now. I like the visuals and using my hands a lot with children. Let them scream. Do it again. Repeat this several times. And once they're ready and calm, then you can kind of go through the steps and where I actually um, 
have a whole um, post on how to handle a tantrum and the steps to go through it, um, which I think is really helpful. With the child who's just not calming down, especially in public, your child is telling you, it's time for me to go home. I'm overwhelmed. And that's on you, the parent. Don't, don't put that on the child because it's your responsibility as the adult to gauge how much should I push my child to go out? How long can I keep them out? Or did they wake up early? And you may not even know if they had a trouble sleeping, you know? And so maybe they're just overtired. And so you have to correctly gauge that. Now, once your child is calm, first you wanna validate whatever they, feel, they were feeling. You were really mad at the table, yeah. And I'm going really slow on purpose because that's how slow I want you to go with your child. And then acknowledge what they wanted, no matter if it was wrong in your eyes. You really wanted to pour the salt on the table. Yeah, it, it can be fun. Then correct it and say, oh, salt stays in the shaker and stays on the table. And then let them know when they can do that, what they wanted to do or what they may, can, may do instead. And so that's where your, the explanation comes in. Oh, if you'd like to continue pouring things, let's find a different way. So for an older child, I'd probably, you know, brainstorm with them. What else can we pour? You know, for a younger child, I'd guide them to, oh, let's, let's go to the park later or let's go to, a, you know, to the beach or a sandbox or whatever where we can take sand and we can pour it. Or if we don't have access to those things, let's go use our sensory table at home or we can take a bunch of beans and pour them, you know, and pour them out. Um, because children love those opposites like in and out and, you know, gravity and whatnot. Um, and then letting them know what your job is. Your, my job as a parent or a caregiver is to make sure you're safe, to make sure you're growing and to make sure you're a kind person. I would say 99% of things fall under one of those three categories that you can use to say it's your job. So in this category, I would say, you know, it's my job to make sure you're a kind person and to make sure uh, you're safe. Salt stays on the table. Um, and otherwise it's not nice to the other people, you know, around us. Um, and remember, I love you. And so the closing of the loop to make sure you let your child know that no matter how overwhelmed they are with their strong feelings, you will always love them and you will always be there. Yeah. It's your job to teach them how to handle those strong feelings, how to cope with them, how to process them, and how to understand that they are going to have mistakes and they, that's how we learn. Yeah. I, I think it's amazing for parents to just learn how to, um, to slow down, right? We tend to rage as much as the kid is raging. And it's so counterproductive to that situation, but also for the kids to really understand um, what's going on. It's like that whole reframing that you were talking earlier about um, for kids with oppositional defiance. It's probably not so simplistic with them, but again, just allowing yourself to rephrase um, and reframe a circumstance for them to, for it to make sense to them, for them, for them to kind of work through a lot of those feelings. If they're having these overwhelmed moments at when, when they're at home, how does that look a little bit different or is it exactly the same way? It's similar. So you're going to go through the same steps. Um, you're not necessarily having to pick up their body unless they are, you know, in danger to themselves or to others, um, or you may have to hold them down 
with a more of a firm grip um, and gently say like, you know, I'm gonna hold your body to keep all, to keep everyone safe, not to, and I can't let you hurt me. Um, I don't like that, that hurts um, if they're kicking and screaming during this. Um, but at home, I see it as, wow, this is so great. I want my child to tantrum. When children aren't tantruming, something's going off, at least in my eyes, because what's going on? I want your child to tantrum because those are teaching moments. Your children need to learn how to process their feelings. Otherwise, when they become an adult, they're either going to hold them in and go have those zero to 100 tempers because they don't know how to process those strong feelings they're having. Or when they're upset at work and they're going to say like, oh, my boss treated me unfairly. I'm going to go home and tell my mom because they have to fix it. Yeah. Uh, something I always say to parents and caregivers is it's not your job to make your child happy. It's your job to help them learn how to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. You know, of course, that's a very difficult thing to do because all parents want to make their children happy, but you're not their best friend. You're their parent, you're their teacher. You know, uh, you are helping to make sure that they will be successful in life in a number of different facets. Um, and so you've got to teach them how to process those strong feelings. Yeah, you know, we're seeing so many, um, the worst part is when those kids grow up to be adults, and they haven't learned how to process a lot of those feelings, is when you start to see um, various relationships, whether it's personal, professional, that's where it takes that tolls when children, when they become adults, are not able to make sense of a lot of their feelings um, and, and, and to process them. So yeah, that makes total sense. I'm so grateful for all of this wisdom. I, I truly, truly hope that, you know, a lot of parents really take this and, and use these in, in their daily, um, daily life. And this is not just for parents of kids either on the spectrum or who are having any conditions, but this is for all parents, right? It's, it's using these tools to really communicate and, and connect with your child on, on a daily basis and being able to help them and support them because it's not just for the now it's for who they're going to become um, in, in the years to come. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for coming on and for sharing all of this with us. Where can, yeah. Where can everybody reach out to you? Where can they find you? Sure. Um, so on Instagram, it's my handle is Dr. Organic Mommy. It's the at sign DR period organic mommy. I've got a website, um, drorganicmommy.drorganicmommy.com. Um, and you can reach me at both of those places where you can message me or email me um, as well. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I had a lovely time speaking with you. I hope you enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you for listening to this podcast and spending your precious time with us at Helping Children Thrive. If you find this podcast helpful, please share it with your family, friends, and others who may benefit. If you haven't already, hit subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. Please take a few moments to rate and review this podcast on the review section of Apple Podcast. This will help other parents, caregivers, and professionals find this show more easily. Visit momentasaleemcoaching.com to post comments on today's show or ask any questions about upcoming episodes and sign up to receive a weekly update. Helping Children Thrive is not a substitute for working with a qualified health 
healthcare professional. The information shared here is not intended to diagnose and treat your child. Before implementing anything discussed here on the podcast, make sure to consult your healthcare practitioner. See you all next week.